Chapter 1 of A Fiend in Need by Milton K. Ozaki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Tucker. A Fiend in Need by Milton K. Ozaki. Chapter 1 I was in the doghouse, definitely and literally and all because Professor Caldwell had decided to rig up a dog pen as a laboratory demonstration of animal learning in the process of facilitation by conditioned stimuli. That's what I said. Facilitation by conditioned stimuli. The idea was swell. I'm all in favor of visual demonstrations whenever possible, because actually seeing things done helps a class more than a dozen lectures. What burned me up was that I... Benedict Brink's personal secretary to Professor Caldwell had ended up with the job of taking care of the dog. But let me explain. Caldwell had gotten a mangy old alley dog from the city pound and rigged up this problem box in the psychology lab. It was a big square box with slatted sides and a sliding panel at each end. A trick door had been built into the center of the box so that the dog was ordinarily confined to one half of the cage, but by pressing a wooden lever, it could release the door and enter the other area. It was all very neat and very scientific, and as I said, it was a good idea. But I simply didn't like the acrid odor of dog which hung about the cage, and my nerves were practically ruined by the four-hour feeding and cleaning routine. You see, the dog had to be fed every four hours, the idea being that if food were put into one end of the box, the dog would do his darndest to get to it. He'd scratch and paw and plunge around until he pressed the lever. Then the trick door would open, he'd discover the food right in front of him, and he'd start filling his belly. After a while, providing the dog had any sort of a brain at all, he'd begin to associate the touching of the lever with the opening of the door, and by and by, getting at the food would be no problem at all to him. That would be evidence of animal learning and proof of facilitation by conditioned stimuli, and I would be released to normal life. Every time I approached the lab, I rolled my eyes toward heaven and prayed that Stinky would be a little smarter. I kept thinking about the damn dog as Caldwell and I walked north on Rust Street toward Gotha Street. It was seven o'clock, and in two hours I had to rush back to the lab and concoct a plate of canine hors d'oeuvres. Caldwell strode along, his spare shoulders squared back into the loose shoulders of his jacket, his lean, pockmarked face pressing forward into the wind which blew toward us from off Lake Michigan, making his short, unruly brown hair move like sunburnt grass in a gale. Caldwell is just a little guy. He weighs about 120 and is 5 feet 1 inch tall. He's 56 years old but doesn't look it, and he's a bachelor, as any woman would know from a glance at his rumpled suit, the soft sag of his collar, the oblique position of his necktie. The only thing which distinguishes him in appearance from, say, a small-time bookkeeper are his eyes. They're warm and blue and wonderfully alive, suggesting at once great kindness and a glow of intellectual fervor. Did I say kindness? <laughs> At the moment, not to me. I was mad clear through. The hell with Caldwell. Why should he? Why shouldn't he take care of his own dog? Unfortunately, I knew the answer to that. Professor Androcles Caldwell, Ph.D., was head of the psychology department of North University, and incidentally, my boss. I was his secretary, his general factotum, his neophyte, his whatever he willed. That's the way it was, and that's the way I knew it'd be until I finished plowing my way through the graduate school and got my M.S. in psychology. Most of the students thought my living and working with Caldwell was a break, but 
Of course, they didn't know that the job included valeting a dog. <laughs> valeting a dog? Can you imagine a guy who stands 5'8 in his socks, weighs 175, and looks dark and sinister in an unfathomable, nondescript way that some women like? Catering to a dog? Caldwell's place increased as we approached Gota Street, and looking ahead, I saw the building we were headed for. I started to glare at it resentfully. Then I blinked and widened my eyes. It was incredible. It was wonderful. My anger wilted away, and a satisfyingly pleasant, sadistic emotion took its place. Thompson isn't home, I said pleasantly. Nonsense, Caldwell's reply was blunt. Professor Thompson is expecting us. There aren't any lights in his apartment, I said. I almost chuckled. If Thompson wasn't there, Caldwell would return home and I'd be free for the rest of the evening. That is, I'd be free until nine o'clock when Stinky was due to be fed again. Professor Thompson is expecting us, Caldwell reiterated. I could tell by the way he clipped the words that, as far as he was concerned, that settled the matter. I shrugged, preceded him up the steps of the building, and held the door open for him. It was a four-story brick building housing eight apartments. I jabbed the self-service elevator button with my thumb, saw the red in-use signal light up, and tapped my foot impatiently while the cage descended. The light in the elevator cage appeared at the top of the ground glass doors and gradually descended to the floor. The hum of the motor clicked off and the cage stopped with an abrupt sigh. I slid the door back and was pulling at the inner brass grill when I saw it. Well, I said, astonished, this is the last straw. Caldwell, having started to follow me into the cage, pressed against me. I pushed him back a little roughly. Sorry, Prof, I said gravely, but I think we ought to go back to the lab and see how stinky is. I let the door of the elevator bang shut and, taking Caldwell's elbow, tried to turn him back toward the lobby. Bendy? Caldwell jerked his arm free and peered at me. Are you ill? I sighed. No, sir, I said. We have an engagement with Professor Thompson, Caldwell stated flatly, and your services will not be required at the laboratory for another three hours. Unless you are ill, we will proceed as planned. I sighed again, slid the elevator door open, and pulled back the brass grill. After you, sir, I said. Caldwell stepped into the cage. The next moment he was out of the cage. Shall we go back to the lab? I asked casually. Caldwell stared silently into the cage. He reached up, removed his pipe from his mouth, and pushed it into his jacket pocket. Nonsense, he muttered. We must telephone the police. Let's go home, or to the lab, or to a movie, I pleaded. You know what happens when we get involved in a murder? That last case you dabbled in tore our schedule to shreds and played havoc with your lectures. It's, it's too much of a strain, sir. Besides, I added, Phelan takes credit for everything, the big lug. Yes, Lieutenant Phelan, Caldwell murmured in a meditative tone. You had better phone him. The body wasn't a pretty sight. The man must have been about 35 years old, 5'9", 170 pounds. He wore a neat blue flannel suit, a white shirt, a conservative dark blue tie. He was sitting on the floor of the elevator with his back against the right-hand wall and the brown hilt of a knife protruding between the lapels of his coat. His legs were stretched flat on the floor at right angles to his body, a pose which contrasted oddly with the almost careless way his head rested against the elevator wall. I could hear the wail of a police siren approaching fast. I went outside and waited on the curb. Soon a black police car ground to a stop. The doors flew open and five burly cops piled out. Lieutenant Phelan, whose 
275 pounds filled his nondescript brown suit almost to bursting, hurried toward me with a speed astonishing for a man his size. His fat face was flushed from exertion, and his small eyes, almost buried in the flesh of his cheeks, were bright and hard. Where is it? Phelan demanded without preamble. Inside, I said, waving toward the door. You can't miss it. The coppers crowded up the steps and pushed their way through the door, and, for want of anything else to do, I followed. The arrival of law and order started things ticking. Phelan and Sergeant Jenkins, I hadn't recognized him at first, knelt on the floor beside the body. Jenkins shook his head hopelessly, and Phelan began bawling instructions. Meadows, phone headquarters and get the technical boys here pronto. Pause. Get around to the back of the building and check on the tenants. You, Jenkins, start going through his clothes and see what you can find. Be careful, though. Better make an inventory as you go along. Phelan stood up and seemed to notice Caldwell for the first time. Well, Professor, he beamed, it looks like you're in on the ground floor this time. How'd you happen to find him? Bendy and I were proceeding to an engagement with Professor Thompson, who lives on the third floor, Caldwell explained. I wrinkled my nose suspiciously at the disinterested tone of his voice. We were about to step into the elevator when we noticed the body. Phelan nodded. Where is this Professor Thompson? He snapped at me. I raised one shoulder indifferently. I have no idea. You had a date with him, didn't you? Caldwell did. Phelan growled and gave me a hard look. Did you ring his bell? No. Why not? How'd you get in? It's this way, I said, taking a deep breath and trying to sound more patient than I felt. Caldwell and Thompson are professors at North University. Thompson knows us, and we know Thompson. We are, in short, well acquainted. Professor Thompson knew we were calling this evening. He expects us. Since we have been here many times before, and since we know which apartment Thompson lives in, we merely opened the door and walked in. It didn't occur to me to ring the bell. You mean the inner door here was open? Yes. You mean open or unlocked? Okay, unlocked. I took hold of the knob and pushed. The door opened. Therefore, I did not ring the bell. Is everything clear now? Phelan's eyes flickered craftily. Then Thompson doesn't know you're down here. No, Lieutenant. I shook my head elaborately. I don't suppose he does. Phelan digested the morsel of information carefully. My sarcasm was wasted. His stolid, self-satisfied attitude shed my digs the way an umbrella does rain. All right, Phelan grunted abruptly. You opened the door and walked in. Then what? I walked right up to the elevator and pushed the button like this. I demonstrated with my thumb. Then I leaned gracefully against the wall and waited. For what? For the elevator to descend, of course. Phelan registered surprise. Was the elevator upstairs? Certainly, I snapped. You don't suppose I'd have pushed the button, and how long did it take for it to come down? How the hell would I know? You said you were waiting for it. Sure, I was waiting for it, so what? You ought to know how long you waited. My God, Phelan, I exclaimed, losing patience. You don't suppose I glue my eyes to the second hand of my watch every time I push an elevator button, do you? Besides, what difference does it make? Because, smart guy, if we knew how long you waited, we can calculate which floor the cage was on when you press the button. Phelan gave me a disgusted glance and turned to Caldwell. How about you, Professor? Any idea how long you waited? Caldwell blinked as though Phelan's query had interrupted a thought. Then, with a confused little cough, he said, No, indeed. In a disinterested tone, he gave Phelan an abstract stare and murmured, I paid no attention. Sergeant Jenkins pushed a yellow ostrich-skin wallet into Phelan's hand. A card identified the victim as Lawrence Straw, Cedarcrest Apartments, Chicago 11, Illinois.
More cars arrived just then, another half-dozen coppers crammed into the small lobby. A photographer angled his camera and began to flash bulbs. Eventually the police doctor arrived. He knelt beside the body, examined it briefly, and then stood up, wiping his hands. How long ago did it happen? Phelan demanded. I guess about sixty to ninety minutes ago. Let's see. Phelan glanced at his watch. I'd make it between six and six-thirty. That's just a guess, the doctor reminded him. I'll have the lab make out a detailed report. Murder or suicide? Murder, of course, the doctor permitted an amused smile to crack across his lips. Take a look at the knife. You don't suppose he put it that way himself, do you? And with a sardonic glance at Phelan, he picked up his bag and hurried out. Detective Davids, leading a Nordic-looking fellow in cotton trousers and a wrinkled brown work shirt, pulled his way through the crowd which was beginning to congregate outside the doors. I got the janitor, Davids announced. He was in the basement. Good, Phelan appraised the janitor speculatively. What's your name? Alfred, Alfred Bonquist. You're the janitor? Yes. How long? Phelan's voice became brisk. Uh, about three years. Know everybody in the building? Yes, sir. The janitor nodded vigorously. I, I sure do. Know this fellow? Phelan gestured toward the elevator and, with his other hand, pushed Bonquist toward the cage. The janitor stepped in and almost instantly backed out again. No, sir, he exclaimed, swallowing excitedly. I never saw him before. Okay. How many apartments in the building? Nine. An odd number. How come? Phelan bent toward Bonquist, who immediately retreated nervously. I was counting my place in the basement, Bonquist explained. Suppose you give us a list of the tenants. Start with the first floor and give us the names and apartment numbers. Got your notebook ready, Davids? Go ahead, David said. Phelan nodded to Bonquist to proceed. Well, Mr. Charles Edelson has apartment 1A, the janitor began cautiously. That's on the right here, and... What's he do? Phelan interrupted. He owns some restaurants. All right, go on. Then on the other side, in apartment 1B, there's Miss uh, Sinclair and Mr. William Dentino. They're... Miss Clare and Mr. Dentino. Phelan's brows shot up. You mean Mr. and Mrs. Dentino, don't you? It's kind of complicated, sir. The janitor winked slightly. Miss Clare is a singer, see, and she and Mr. Dentino used to be married, only she got a divorce about six months ago, and now they ain't married anymore. But she and Mr. Dentino still live together. What does this Dentino do? Phelan growled. He runs a nightclub on Madison Street. It's called the Rio Susanna. Does this Miss Clare sing in his joint? No, sir, I don't know where she sings, but it ain't in his place. All right, get on to the tenants. Well, Mr. Flecker has 2A on the floor above. That's Mr. Richard Starr Flecker, you know, the writer and lecturer. You'll have heard of him, I guess. Is he the fellow who writes poetry and makes speeches at women's clubs? Phelan asked. That's him, sir, the janitor nodded. He's a very cultured gentleman. Uh, then across from him, in 2B, there's Mr. and Mrs. Don McGregor. Mrs. McGregor's name is Maud. You'll like her, sir. He shuffled his feet self-consciously. Mr. McGregor doesn't do much of anything, but Maud, that is, Mrs. McGregor, works in a hat store over on Michigan Avenue. She's a clerk. Phelan snorted. Tell us about the others. Oh, that's on the second floor. On the third floor, Professor Thompson is in 3A. That's John Niles Thompson, you know, of North University. Very quiet, very scholarly, although there's some that think he's a little... 
The janitor raised his arms and fluttered his fingers. If you know what I mean. I know what you mean, Phelan assured him. Then across from the professor, there's three girls and three B. There's Miss Elaine Rule, Miss Barbara O'Neill, and Miss June Hanson. Miss Hanson is the real tenant because the furniture belongs to her and she signed the lease. But Miss Rule and Miss O'Neill live with her. What do they do? And they're stenographers, I guess. Pretty ritzy apartment for three stenographers, isn't it? Phelan asked. Well, the rent's one hundred and fifty a month, split three ways. It ain't so much. Says you, commented Phelan. Well, get on to the next floor. Mrs. Damon Ross has four A. She's old and an invalid. Her husband died and left her a pile of money. And she's got a nurse and a maid in the apartment with her. Ross? Phelan's brow wrinkled into an expression of concentration. Is that the Ross who owned a coal yard? Died about three years ago. That's the one, sir. Damon Ross, Ross Lumber and Coal Company. She's been very sickly ever since. Hardly ever leaves the building except in a wheelchair with her nurse. It's too bad. He wagged his head sympathetically. Go on, Phelan prompted. Yes, sir. Across the hall from Mrs. Ross, there's Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd Dougal in 4B. He's a contractor. His wife's name is Bertha. She's a lot of fun. Likes to joke and... That's the lot. Yes, sir. All right, Bonquist. That's all for now. Phelan gave him a shrewd glance. Not married, are you? The janitor looked startled. Sure, I'm married. Why? You seem pretty familiar with the women in the building. Oh, that. Bonquist waved one hand carelessly. That's because I see him around more than I do the men. Most of the men are away all day. It's the women who are always... Coming around with complaints, things to be fixed, and so on. I see, Phelan grunted a dismissal. Davids, stay here and keep people out of the lobby. Lock the front doors and keep them locked. Don't let anyone in or out, and I mean anyone. Understand? Sure, Lieutenant. Detective Davids nodded agreeably and adjusted the bolt on the front door. Phelan grunted again and turned to Sergeant Jenkins. What'd you find on him? He asked, indicating the body. Eh, not much, Lieutenant. There's a white monogram handkerchief, 78 cents in small change, 33 dollars in bills, a fountain pen, three pencils, a keytainer, a silver cigarette case containing eight cigarettes, and a chromium lighter. Jenkins gestured mildly with his notebook. The bills were in his wallet, which was in his left hip pocket. The change was in his front pants pocket on the right side. Phelan shifted his weight indecisively from one foot to the other, then turned and started for the stairs. We'd better circulate through the building, he said. It's funny we haven't heard from any of the tenants yet. They usually stand around in droves. He started up the steps, then paused and peered back. Get David's list, Perkins, and come along. You too, Professor. You still want to visit your friend, don't you? Caldwell, who had been standing unobtrusively against the lobby wall, puffing his pipe with apparent disinterest in the activity about him, straightened up and nodded casually. Thank you, Percy, he murmured. Professor Thompson is expecting me, and if you don't mind, I'd like to go directly to his apartment. Sure, Phelan agreed. We'll all go up and see him. Professor Thompson appeared at his door dressed in a natty blue satin lounging robe. Oh, good evening, doctor, he greeted Caldwell effusively. And Bendy, how good it is to see you. His small, spectacled eyes blinked as they took in Phelan and Sergeant Jenkins, but poise gained from years of lecturing to undergraduate classes effectively concealed any surprise he may have felt. He bowed graciously and waved toward the interior of the apartment. Come in. Lovely evening, isn't it? Good evening, Professor, Caldwell responded. Our escort wishes to make your acquaintance. 
He indicated Phelan and Jenkins with a nod. Lieutenant Percy Phelan and Sergeant Jenkins, who are connected with the Detective Bureau. Professor John Niles Thompson. And at that, Caldwell turned abruptly and walked into the apartment. Me, I followed. <laughs> the Detective Bureau? Thompson exclaimed with apparent delight. Indeed, this is a great pleasure, Lieutenant. Do come in. And you, Sergeant. Professor Thompson was always enthusiastic. His sentences were short, lively, sprinkled lavishly with italics. In a way, his mannerisms of speech were similar to his physical mannerisms. He was short, full of nervous energy, and a perfect example of the polished academician. He was about forty-five years old, I'd say, and had the thin, ascetic features usually associated with Dante. His hair, gray and sparse, came to a pointed widow's peak on his forehead. The whole effect was one of careful grooming and ultra-intelligence. "'Thanks, Professor Thompson,' Phelan said, striding into the room and looking about with professional thoroughness. It was a large, lavish room, richly ornamented with porcelain lamps, deep pile rugs, comfortable leather chairs, a long couch with thick satin pillows, and thousands of books on shelves which reached to the ceiling. Its decor was masculine in severity, but the appointments, almost femininely luxurious, indicated a love of comfort, color, and literature. Uh, Professor Thompson,' Phelan began heavily, "'this isn't a social call. I am here on business.' He cleared his throat, hesitated. "'Really?' Thompson's brows shot up with polite interest. "'From the detective bureau, Dr. Caldwell said, didn't he? Most interesting.' "'Yes,' Phelan leaned forward and fixed his eyes on Professor Thompson. "'Tell me, Professor, what time did you get home this afternoon?' Five o'clock.' Thompson gave a pert nod and smiled. "'Did you meet anyone as you came into the building?' "'No,' Thompson shook his head and smiled brightly. "'Did you come up in the elevator?' Uh, "'Certainly.' Notice anything out of the ordinary or unusual? Well, it did seem a little slow, and I noticed a slight metallic rattle, as though a chain had come loose somewhere, and... That isn't what I mean, Phelan interrupted. Were you alone in the elevator? Yes, indeed. And you didn't notice anything unusual? No, only that the elevator seemed... Okay, a scowl crossed Phelan's face. Have you had any visitors since you got home? None at all. Thompson smiled amiably at Caldwell and me, and then returned his attention to Phelan. "'Have you heard any strange noises, any unusual sounds or disturbances since you got home?' Phelan persisted. "'No, I haven't. I've been quite busy since arriving home, Lieutenant, and, much as I'd like to oblige you, I'm afraid.' "'Perhaps you wouldn't mind telling us, Professor, what you've been doing?' Phelan glanced at his watch. "'For the last two and a half hours.' "'With pleasure. Let me see.' Thompson patted his satin lounging robe free of wrinkles and arranged his right leg comfortably across his left knee. He twitched the trouser crease away from the point of greatest strain and then cocked his eyes thoughtfully toward the ceiling. Upon arriving home, I straightened the apartment. It had been quite thoroughly disarranged by my seminar class, which met here last evening. I returned books to their proper shelves, restored phonograph albums to the record cabinet, and generally tidied the room. Oh, yes, he raised a forefinger triumphantly. I also washed and dried several dishes. How long did that take? Twenty minutes. Exactly. I am both efficient and methodical, Thompson assured Phelan primly. Then what'd you do? I bathed. At 5.20 in the afternoon? The expression on Phelan's face betrayed surprise. My usual practice, Thompson explained. I like to wash away the soil of toil. 
He tipped his head on one side and repeated, The soil of toil. Euphonious, isn't it? I grinned at him, and he nodded and smiled back. I would say that that consumed perhaps another thirty minutes. Thirty minutes just for a bath? Phelan raised his voice incredulously. Certainly, Thompson assured him. I do not believe in brief immersions, nor did I merely sprinkle myself in a shower. I bathe in the manner that an enlightened human being should. Phelan merely grunted, but his eyebrows remained near his hairline. That brings us to 5.50, doesn't it? Thompson added. He dipped his head in a quick nod and went on. I proceeded to dress, spending at least ten minutes donning fresh linen, changing accessories from one trouser to another, selecting the proper tie, and so on. That brings us to six o'clock, Phelan said relentlessly. At six o'clock I entered my study. You noticed the time? Yes, Lieutenant, you see it is my habit to spend the hour between six and seven each Thursday evening in my study. Doing what? I spend the hour in absolute contemplation. Contemplation of what? Caldwell interpolated dryly. Professor Thompson is a Veracrucianist, Lieutenant. Yeah, what's that? It's a mystic order concerned with mental development and the search for truth, Caldwell explained. Anything like spiritualism? Phelan asked, a puzzled look on his face. Certainly not, Thompson exclaimed indignantly. It is not like spiritualism, Caldwell agreed, a note of strained patience creeping into his voice. I assure you, Lieutenant, that it is their general practice to spend an hour in meditative confinement each Thursday. Look, Professor, Phelan leaned forward with an expression of extreme seriousness. Do you mean to tell me that you, Vero, that, that you people always spend the hour between six and seven every Thursday alone in some room? Not all Veracrucianists devote the same hour to contemplation, Thompson explained. Each selects the hour most convenient to him. How'd you happen to pick the hour between six and seven tonight? I always devote that hour each Thursday to absolute contemplation. It is a practice which I have followed for years. Dr. Caldwell is familiar with this practice of mine, and I believe has always timed his Thursday evening visits accordingly. What you actually mean, Phelan concluded pointedly, is that you can't account for any of your activities this evening. I don't understand, Thompson's eyebrows fluttered up and down like butterfly wings. I have accounted for them. You haven't got any witnesses, have you? Of course not. Thompson seemed slightly irritated by Phelan's obtuseness. Solitude is an absolute requirement for satisfactory bathing and contemplation. He laughed brightly, as though he had scored a bon mot and beamed at all four of us through his spectacles. Do you know Lawrence Straw? Phelan demanded abruptly. Straw? Lawrence Straw. I believe there was a straw... Let me see. Was his name Lawrence? In one of my classes. Not last year, perhaps the year previous. He was murdered this evening. Murdered? Thompson's eyes widened. Really? Right outside your door, Phelan added. No! Professor Thompson blinked rapidly and then, with a nervous, poorly coordinated gesture, picked his spectacles from his nose and stared bare-eyed at Phelan. Outside my door, he repeated. Goodness.
He shook his head as though partially stunned by the announcement. In the hall? In the elevator. And this evening, you say? He began to associate the idea of a murdered man with the presence of Lieutenant Phelan. Oh, my goodness. You suspect me in connection with this... this horrible occurrence. He was murdered between six and six-thirty, Phelan stated grimly. Why, that was during my period of contemplation. Thompson turned the fact over mentally, twisting the earpieces of his spectacles with his fingers as he did so. I see I do not have an alibi. None at all, Phelan agreed, watching Thompson's face intently. With a sudden determined motion, Thompson replaced his spectacles and jumped to his feet. Lieutenant, my apartment is at your disposal. He made a quixotic little bow and described a sweeping arc toward the rear of the apartment with one hand. You have my permission to search for incriminating evidence, as you no doubt desire to do. Thanks, Professor. Phelan rose ponderously to his feet. We'll just glance through the place. Phelan and Sergeant Jenkins went down the hall, turning on lights as they went. Caldwell continued to puff calmly on his pipe. Thompson sat down and began rubbing his hands together like an agitated pawn-shop proprietor. I glanced at Caldwell and found him looking at me. He tipped his head slightly in the direction of the hallway. I sighed, coaxed my legs under my body, and trotted after the coppers. Phelan and Jenkins uncovered nothing of unusual interest in their search, and soon we were all together again in the living room. "'There's one more thing, Professor,' Phelan said gruffly. "'I'd like you to look at the body of this Lawrence Straw, just in case you can recall him.' "'Certainly, Lieutenant. I'll be glad to oblige you.' Thompson got to his feet and fluttered to the door. Phelan went out the door after him and called down the stairs. "'Davids! Professor Thompson is on his way down. Show him the body.' Okay, David's voice echoed back, and Thompson scampered down the tile steps. Well, we'll start upstairs and work down, Phelan decided, glancing at Jenkins. Who's up there? Mrs. Ross and who else? Uh, let's see, Jenkins consulted his notebook. Mrs. Ross, the invalid, is in 4A, directly upstairs of Professor Thompson, and Mr. and Mrs. Dougal are in 4B. Okay, we'll take Mrs. Ross first. With Phelan in the lead, they started toward the fourth floor. I watched them as they went up the steps, trying to think of a simile to describe the way Phelan managed to move his bulk both forward and upward at the same time. But of course it wasn't any use. I shrugged and walked back into Thompson's apartment, only to find Caldwell's eyes leveled at me. Ah, oh, Prof, I said, anticipating his instructions. Do I have to tag along after the coppers? Merely go along and observe, Bindi, Caldwell said quietly between puffs on his pipe. I'm interested in Phelan's procedure. All right, I said, making no effort to conceal my dislike for the job. But you may as well know that I'd rather be digging coal or shoveling garbage. I went upstairs with dragging feet, but got there in time to follow Jenkins into the Ross apartment. It was sort of funny the way Phelan was pushing the fat old nurse back step by step. She was waving her hands and protesting in a high, shrill voice that Mrs. Ross was ill, that Mrs. Ross was sleeping that Mrs. Ross couldn't be disturbed. And Phelan, stolidly and insistently, was nodding and agreeing and pushing himself forward into the apartment. The old nurse argued every inch of the way like a hen protecting her chick, but Phelan's superior bulk was too much for her. Yeah, 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 Phelan kept assuring her. We aren't going to disturb Mrs. Ross. I know she's sick. We're looking for a murderer, and he may be in here. Murderer? She shrilled. In here? Her resistance crumbled completely. 
You don't mean in here, officer. There hasn't been anybody in here all evening. That's fine, then, Phelan assured her soothingly. We'll just glance through the apartment to make sure and then be on our way. He nodded to Sergeant Jenkins, who immediately maneuvered around Phelan's flank and started down the hallway. I followed him. Jenkins strode rapidly through the apartment, turning on lights, entering rooms, examining tables and drawers, turning lights off, and going on to the next room. At last we got to Mrs. Ross's bedroom. Jenkins snapped on the lights, stared briefly at the invalid's wizened, sleeping face, gave the room a quick glance, and snapped the light off. We went back to the living room, where Phelan was still arguing with the nurse. The maid, Phelan was saying. You know what a maid is, don't you? Where is she? I'm alone on Thursdays, the old nurse hollered back. Sally isn't here, and she won't be here until tomorrow morning. Have you and Mrs. Ross been alone all day? I keep telling you that over and over. The nurse was fairly quivering with rage. No one's been here. We've been alone. We didn't hear anything. Can you hear the elevator from here? This is a soundproof building, and you can't hear nothing in here that goes on out there. I told you that four times already. She pressed hot lips together indignantly. The idea. What were you doing at six o'clock? Phelan continued, ignoring her mounting anger. I was resting. She snapped the words at him. All right. Do you know Lawrence Straw? Certainly I know Lawrence Straw, the nurse snapped. What's he got to do with this? You do? Phelan's face showed surprise. Who is he? He works for Mrs. Ross. What about him? What kind of work? Phelan demanded. Lawrence is her auditor. Why? Was he here this afternoon? The nurse groaned painfully and rolled her eyes. No one was here this afternoon, she shouted, slapping the arm of a chair for emphasis. No one! Do you want me to spell it? That won't be necessary, Phelan assured her. You see, I happen to know that Lawrence Straw was in the building this afternoon, and if he's an employee of Mrs. Ross, it seems logical to assume that he either came here or was on his way here. He raised his brows inquiringly. He wasn't here. She put her hands on her hips and moved her shoulders angrily. I keep telling you that. He wasn't here. She paused, breathing heavily, then asked, Who says Lawrence was in the building? I know he was in the building, Phelan said, his eyes intent on her face. Because he's still here. He was murdered right outside this door. The old nurse's mouth gaped foolishly and her eyes opened so wide I thought they'd split. I don't believe it, she gasped. Not Mr. Straw? Phelan shrugged. Take her downstairs and show him to her, Jenkins, he said in a tight, hard voice. He watched Jenkins and the nurse start down, then he muttered, An auditor. The effort of correlating an auditor with the dead body in the elevator was too much for him. With a conclusive, Hell, he jerked his shoulders helplessly and started for the door. Let's move on, he said. We'll leave Mrs. Ross until morning. He pressed the buzzer of the door across the hall, and we heard it squawk like a woodpecker on a tin roof. Phelan waited a minute, then jabbed it again, longer and more insistently. The buzzer responded mockingly, but no one answered. Out, Phelan muttered. I followed him down to the third floor and watched him buzz the apartment across from Thompson's. The door opened almost before the buzzer stopped. Hello? A slip of a girl greeted. Mr. Faraday? No, it isn't Mr. Faraday. Phelan said gruffly, stepping forward. It's Lieutenant Phelan of the Detective Bureau. Mind if we come in? He pushed forward into the apartment without waiting for an answer, and 
Like a small tug pulled along in the wake of a liner, I followed too. The girl was too astonished to stop us. The room, furnished with modern furniture, inexpensively but with good taste, had welcome written all over it. A large square sofa interested me immediately, for a small blonde sat in the center of it, her blue eyes wide and expectant. She started to raise one hand in a welcoming gesture, but, on seeing us, she hesitated and left it motionless in her lap. On a rectangular glass cocktail table in front of the sofa stood a bottle of bourbon, ice cubes, and three glasses. I smiled at the blonde and walked over and sat down beside her. "'Hello,' she said pleasantly enough. "'I'm Elaine Rule.' "'I'm Benedict Brinks,' I said, treating my eyes to a survey of her figure. "'Call me Bendy.' "'All right, Bendy,' she said. Her voice lingered on the syllables. Then she looked at Phelan, glanced back at me, then stared at Phelan again. I leaned toward her until my lips almost touched her ear. "'Jiggers, the cops,' I whispered. "'Oh?' Her eyes widened prettily. "'What's the idea?' "'Stick around,' I said. Lieutenant Phelan stood in the center of the room. Sergeant Jenkins, returning from downstairs, came in and stood behind him, ready to search the premises. The girl who had opened the door was confronting Phelan with her hands on her hips, her shoulders back, and a dangerous glitter in her eyes. She was small and sleek and special in a gray wool dress, which dotted all her eyes and crossed all her T's. "'What the hell do you lugs want?' she demanded sweetly. "'Are you June Hanson?' Phelan asked. "'That's right, Lieutenant,' her voice vibrated with resentment. "'What's on your mind?' "'Is this one of your roommates?' Phelan jerked his head toward the blonde beside me. "'Yes, her name is Elaine Rule. she tossed her head. "'So what?' "'Where's your other roommate, Miss O'Neill?' "'Barbara isn't in, if you're looking for her.' "'I'm not,' Phelan cut in. "'At least not right now.' He stared at June Hanson as though appraising her. "'You were expecting Lawrence Straw, weren't you?' he asked fishing for information. "'What's it to you?' she countered, beginning to tap her right toe impatiently. "'Has he been here already?' "'Listen, copper,' her chin tilted challengingly. "'I never heard of a guy named Straw, and we haven't had any company this evening. We are expecting company, however, and it certainly would be nice if you were somewhere else when he arrives.' "'Been home all evening?' "'Since five-thirty. Listen, this is beginning to sound like a quiz program. What are you after?' Phelan shrugged massively. This isn't a social call, he said in a hard voice. A man was killed outside this apartment about two hours ago. And even if it inconveniences you, it's my duty to conduct an investigation. Murdered? The girls jerked erect and stared blankly at each other. Then, as though the same question occurred to each of them at the same time, they turned startled faces toward Phelan and asked in unison, Outside our apartment? Probably, Phelan stated grimly. Now cut the dramatics and let's get on with this. Tell me what you were doing at six o'clock. We were eating dinner together. Then what'd you do? We bathed and dressed, her voice tightened sarcastically, as is usual when company is expected. Yeah, who's this Faraday you're expecting? A friend, June Hanson bit the words off short. What time is Faraday supposed to get here? He said he'd be here about 7.30. Sort of late, isn't he? It's no business of yours. June Hanson gripped her hands together so tightly the knuckles stood out like white buttons. Why do you persist in annoying us? If there's been a murder, why aren't you out looking for the murderer? We haven't been out of the apartment, and I told you that no one's been here. We had nothing to do with it. Maybe you didn't, maybe you did, Phelan said stolidly. We'll have to look through the place just to make sure. 
Well, I'm sure I couldn't stop you. Phelan and Jenkins walked down the hall and began turning on lights and opening doors. I weighed the pros and cons and the advantages and disadvantages and decided, just like that, to stay with the girls. June Hansen gave me an accusing glance. I shook my head and said, Don't shoot, I'm not a copper. You're with them, she reminded me. I just came for the ride, I said. I raised my right hand. Honest. You're a smooth liar. It's the truth, I grinned amiably. I'm secretary to Dr. Androcles Steverson Caldwell of North University, and we happened to stumble across the body while on the way to visit with Professor Thompson, who lives across the hall from you. Who did he say was killed? June asked. Straw. A fellow by the name of Lawrence Straw, I said. I was thinking about something else. The scent of Elaine was in my nostrils, and, for all I cared, the entire first floor of the building could have been piled with corpses. June Hansen kept biting her lip angrily and glanced toward the hallway as though she was restraining herself with difficulty. Personally, I didn't blame her, for I wouldn't have liked having the cops dig around in my personal effects. Phelan and Jenkins ambled back, eventually, empty-handed, and judging by the expressions on their faces, unsuccessful in discovering anything out of the ordinary. All right, girls, Phelan grunted. That's all for now. As soon as you've both looked at the body, Elaine squealed. Oh, do we have to? Anything to get you guys out of here, June Hansen exclaimed, jumping to her feet. Come on, Elaine, let's get it over with. Gosh, June, I don't want to look at a dead man, Elaine protested, but she slid off the couch nevertheless, her hands automatically smoothing her dress and followed June to the door. I tagged downstairs with the girls while Phelan waited impatiently in the hall. The girls peered into the cage together. Color drained from Elaine's face, and June Hansen pressed her fist hard against her mouth to stifle a scream as she saw Lawrence Straw's face. "'Oh, my God!' she whispered hoarsely. "'It's John Faraday!' End of chapter 1